This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. How's everybody doing tonight? So how about tonight's music by the Salty Dogs? Do you like the Salty Dogs? Hailing from Little Rock, Arkansas, the Salty Dogs have shared the stage with Hank Williams Jr., Old Crow Medicine Show, and Kinky Friedman, among many others. They have CDs for sale after the show, and more can be found at thesaltydogs.net. All right, well, welcome to a very special edition of Tales from the South, our Season 10 holiday show where Southerners bring their own true holiday stories to life. We are on location at the historic Capitol Hotel in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. Tales from the South is presented by Temino's Publishing Company and the Midnight Muse Writing Workshops, and I'm your host, Paula martin Morell. What do y'all think about our set back here? Y'all like our set? These Delta screen doors with mixed media portraiture are by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox from her Images of the American South collection and are for sale. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. Our listeners can find out more about these pieces and V.L. at her website, greatfineart.com. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern-style holiday storytelling? Tonight, our storytellers take us back to holidays past, from Christmas memories to New Year's wishes, and a lot in between. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who live them. Later tonight, Karen Hicks is just trying to get some Christmas shopping done. Then Carlos Cervantes' Christmas in Vietnam is full of hope. Helen Austin takes us to a legendary New Orleans restaurant on Christmas Eve. Then Paul Bowen takes his brother Bob's Christmas Day Challenge. And we'll end the night ringing in the new year with Crystal C. Mercer. But let's start the night here at Tales from the South with Lisa Brandon and a Christmas pageant in and all through the house. Christmas was coming so quickly in the fall of 1979. I wondered if I could get everything done to be able to enjoy the season. After all, I was teaching full-time at a small Christian school in northwest Arkansas, was the mother of a second grader and a sixth grader, was a teacher of Sunday school in the toddler department, and on top of it all, I had just enrolled in a doctoral program at the University of Arkansas. One of my many teaching assignments that fall was being drama teacher at junior high school. Of course, all who have ever worked in such a capacity know that the big expectation is to present a Christmas play to the entire church congregation a week before the holiday. To say I was frazzled would be an understatement. I felt as if I might break into a million little pieces, and I'm sure I uttered my usual cry many times. Lord Jesus, please help me. I had scoured the Christian literature for weeks looking for a good play to present. I finally found it. It was to be a drama that consisted of a split stage. On the left front, a modern-day scenario would take place. 
a father with his small children sitting cozily near him, preparing to share with the children the real meaning of Christmas, not focusing on Santa Claus or the commercial preparations going on in the form of exchanging multiple presents. My own children, however, had been marking and circling possible presents for themselves since September in the J.C. Penney's catalog. <laughs> the play would center on the story of Jesus' birth. On the right-hand stage, there would magically appear, under the spotlight, a story some 2,000 years ago. The casting call went out, and every student in the drama class was given a role. Though for some of my male students, that meant simply dressing as shepherds or kings, with silence and stillness being the primary means of selection. As in any class, some are extroverts and overacted their tryouts without shame, then badgered me remorsefully until I posted the cast list. My most valuable assistant was to be a young man not very talented in histrionics, but who proved to be an ace in organizing props and adjusting the sound and light system to perfection. My Mary, mother of the Christ child, would be a 13-year-old responsible young woman who had younger nieces and nephews that she babysat. The winter of 1979 was particularly cold, frosty, and dreary. My husband and I had bought a used Volkswagen van to transport not only our children around, but also students. We used it going to and from play practice for about six weeks, often picking up cast members and taking them home again. By the time of the dress rehearsal, the weatherman had predicted minus five as a low on the night of the play. The excitement of finally reaching dress rehearsal was palpable. The students had finally learned their lines and they were ready to perform. A bit of a technical problem, however, lingered in my head and I mulled over a possibility I had not thought of before. One of my pet peeves in previous plays about the birth of Jesus was that the teacher or director had always used a baby doll wrapped in a cuddly blanket, but nevertheless, a doll. An idea popped into my head, and before rehearsal that night, I impetuously called a friend of mine who had a new baby, a boy six weeks old. Without pausing, I gushed, Sheila, do you think you would allow baby John to be in our Christmas play tomorrow night? We have a Mary who's quite good with babies and has had a lot of babysitting experiences. I was astonished, frankly, when she agreed to let her precious baby boy, boy play Jesus the next night. As was typical of many dress rehearsals, the final practice was not without its surprises. Mary had only to walk across the stage and place the baby in the wooden crib surrounded by hay bales. With the fake baby doll in her arms, Mary proceeded to trip on a hay bale. The baby doll went flying through the air about six feet like a broken Razorback football toss. The commotion caused by this sight caused the shepherds and the three kings to dance around wily, knocking one of the stable walls down with a loud crash. <laughs> While no one was hurt in any way, I knew I would have to do a lot of, Lord Jesus, please help me, before the actual performance. 
The next night, I watched as the congregation filled the sanctuary noisily. The younger children chattering with excited voices and their parents talking to friends. I held my hands tightly through every line of the play, though my right foot seemed to have a mind of its own and swung crazily back and forth. All went well to this point, and I repeatedly told myself, breathe in, breathe out. As Mary walked across the stage, especially for that key scene, and placed baby John in his crib, the soundtrack played the usual version of Silent Night. At this point, baby John began to wave his arms about, seemingly to the beat of the music. The audience was hushed when they realized baby Jesus was a real baby on this bright, clear, and cold December night. One could hear the coos of baby John throughout the sanctuary, and all through the house, the silence became deafening. The final scene of the play arrived, and I again watched with trepidation as my adolescent shepherds and three kings lowered the stable walls to reveal a single cross in the center of the stage, highlighted by a red spotlight. Jesus, our Savior, had symbolically begun his mission on earth. I could breathe again. Lisa Brandom retired to Little Rock 10 years ago to be with her grandchildren. Every day with them is a blessing. Next on Tales from the South, Karen Hicks heads out on the ice determined to buy Christmas gifts in A Very VW Christmas. Southerners are known for doing many things famously. Among those are sweet iced tea, front porch swing conversation, and neighborly kindness. However, in the winter weather driving category, they are infamous for their major insanity and inability to drive without a five-car pileup on one half inch of snow with no heels involved. <laughs> Supermarkets and grocery stores are rapidly stripped of perishables at the slightest threat of winter weather, even for those possessing the equivalent of a doomsday ration for a year. Not me. I feel no threat to my home stockpile, nor do I venture out. But when it comes to buying Christmas gifts, winter driving rules do not apply. It was mid-December 1983, with record cold temperatures for almost two weeks. Ice formed on the Arkansas River, and lakes froze solid. Some say so many cows died falling through the ice-covered ponds that frozen beef prices hit an all-time low. <laughs> Winter precipitation began several days before Christmas, and because of the lingering Arctic blast, driving remained treacherous. Being a teacher, school was closed before Christmas break. Oh, joy, it's a magical mix of snow and ice. It's sparkling in the winter sun. That is, until December 23rd. The official a Christmas procrastinator shopping day. And the epiphany, if that big fall came on the 25th, I would be the pariah bearing no gifts in a family that determined your pecking order by the gifts she proffered up. <laughs> Signed checks and a cheap Christmas card? Bah humbug! Should have shopped ahead, you straggling holiday has-been. 
I knew the trek would be treacherous. Peril loomed large. Living in a rural area meant no department or chain stores nearby. Determination to purchase gifts for all, no matter what the circumstances, drove me forward. All paved roads leading into town meant conquering a steep incline. My land yacht, my 1982 Monte Carlo, would surely handle these with ease. <laughs> Disappointingly, back I slid, defeated from each attempt, and returned home to lick my magi wounds. Fortunately, like a temporarily observant St. Nick, I spied my faithful and forgotten 73 VW Beetle bug, it was Biscay Blue, which longingly sat at the side of the house, sadly passed over for years. With its back-mounted engine, Blue smiled at me. Hello, Altafund! Her sassy bumper and happy headlights beckoned me to come along and give it the old German try. Bluebug and I tried each access into town again, but the inclines proved too steep for even her heavy bottom nests. Defeated by infrastructure, I headed home with the melancholy of empty-handed Christmas shame in my future. I remembered one last chance for egress, Drake Trail. Drake Trail is a winding but relatively incline-free dirt road that loggers and hunters frequent but is aptly named a trail instead of a road for good reason. Four-wheel drive vehicles and logging trucks view the Drake as a trail for the seasoned only. The trail ends at Highway 167. If Bluebug and I could make it to the end of Drake, we could travel by salted and plowed roads into town. I was plucky in my youthful Christmas enthusiasm. These were the days before cell phones, GPS, internet, and two-day home delivery. <laughs> if you had a jug of water, a flashlight, a blanket, a candy bar, and dry matches, you were considered prepared. Hesitantly, as in you will be walking on butt-busting ice for at least five miles, dummy, I steered blue onto the trailhead. Although dependable, VW Beetles, by virtue of size, have a low clearance. Drake Trail, by virtue of the vehicles that frequented it, even in dry weather, had very high clearance ruts. Drake was now solid sheets of ice, ruts and all. But like the little engine that could, we twisted and chugged along slowly. Even though I could hear the undercarriage being scraped like a German U-boat snaking through a coral reef, I continued. Approaching the downward slide toward the highway, I felt ebullient as we came to the home stretch. Driving confidence rapidly turned into an uncontrolled free slide, a malfunctioning monorail. Blue's clearance was no longer sufficient to handle the icy ruts. Her wheels were no longer in contact with the road, rather the undercarriage. It skidded atop the icy ruts. Suddenly, we were sliding on the rut track the undercarriage being the only contact with anything solid. Blue skidded sideways. Brakes in this sort of a situation are kind of like cigarette holders for those which, wishing to quit smoking. They're useless. Why had I risked Blue for such a commercialized endeavor? I knew the bodywork to restore her would be considerably more than the cheap crap I was going to purchase for gifts. 
That was if she stopped before I was deposited on the highway in front of an 18-wheel monster to be smashed to bits. I closed my eyes and waited for the outcome. The steering wheel would be like those on bumper cars, for drivers to perpetually spin with a pretension that they have in control. A sad pine sapling, defeated by all the snow and ice, lay bent over the trail and stopped our trajectory, miraculously depositing Blue's wheels back into the ruts. I was relieved, yet I could not admit defeat. Ahead, I could see the highway, a mere 25 yards ahead. Fortunately, and by pure dumb luck, the soft, snowy needles of the sapling rested against the passenger side, brushing Blue without damaging her. So close, this had to be a sign. <laughs> Former Girl Scouts are trained to be invented. I exited and tried to bend the sapling out of the way, but its girth was too much and the slingshot effect too risky. I thought about snapping off all the needles, but they would find my frozen body before that was accomplished. <laughs> I imagine being on the six o'clock news. Local woman freezes to death attempting to purchase cheap Christmas gifts. <laughs> then I remembered the knockoff Swiss knife my husband had placed in the glove compartment as a joke when he had stranded her in the icy bottomland years before. Well, if I'm ever stupid enough to drive the bug out on the ice again, I'll use this. Ha <laughs> ha! I saw it on the sapling and spurt. Cheap knockoff knives should never be purchased for an emergency. But after several sessions, the sapling broke free and we made it onto the highway. Being ever so grateful, I followed the state highway to the nearest store, a Target, Greatland in the former Southwest Mall. Shopping at this point had become a dazed afterthought. I raked my arms across the remaining Whitman sampler shelf until the boxes just crashed into the cart. Every child on my list received the same gift, remaining five Play-Doh food factory sets in the toy aisle. Flannel clothing of every kind better be appreciated during the big freeze because that was the choice. Speed shoppers be damned. I was purchased and fully packed with blue for the trip before slippery sundown. My faithful friend would guide the way. Christmas Day would be no less treacherous, but I knew the way now down Drake Trail in a four-wheel drive pickup. <laughs> Bluebug's love for her driver was unconditional and became a Christmas gift I will never forget. Karen Hicks, a resident of Eastern Saline County in Arkansas, has been a teacher for over 30 years and, it, and is a true believer in beginning Christmas shopping on January 1st. <laughs> Next on Tales from the South, let's go to the jungles of Vietnam and Christmas 1968 with Carlos Cervantes in Three Hours of Hope. First of all, I would like to dedicate this uh, short story to all past and present Vietnam veterans who have given their time as well as their lives for us to be able to enjoy this comfortable way of life. All names have been changed to protect the innocent, and at times the language can be harsh. 
It was the only way a Vietnam veteran was able to express himself, especially in that environment called Nam. December 24th, 1968, someplace in Southeast Asia. 1400 hours, that's uh, two o'clock. Temperature 119 degrees. The company-sized unit had been humping hard since 0600 hours after an elusive enemy that kept its distance when he wanted to, and then would resurface with an ambush for harassment to thin us out as much as possible for their final assault, if and when they decided, and just keep us at high alert with that uncomfortable feeling that we knew were always being watched with every step we took. Company RTO Sergeant Sanchez was starting to get nervous. As an old timer, he felt they could be moving into a trap. When they left, when they had left uh, the firebase LZ Franco on December the 1st, they had started out with 162 men. Now they were down to 151. In 24 days, they had lost 11. Three were KIAs and eight were wounded in action. And Charlie was not done with them as of yet. Sanchez was trying hard on staying focused and positive since their loss of their beloved captain earlier in the month through an accident that was not meant to be. If only they had not convinced him to attend a going away party for a colonel who was ending his tour. Now it seemed that bad karma was getting even, and he knew, as were the rest of the unit, low on supplies, and being that it was Christmas Eve, that did not sit well on the morale. Suddenly, LT, Lieutenant, put his right hand up in a fist, signifying a halt. I responded by raising mine, and down the line he went, everyone, a dead stop. I noticed our point man, 2nd Platoon, RTO, Masterfield, a redhead from Washington, a.k.a. Yankee, coming back, coming back up the path, motioning for me and the lieutenant for a briefing on his situation. We sat in a tight circle, and Yankee whispers to us, Lieutenant, the trail has gone cold. We're not even close to where they could be. He says, I've got this feeling they have either doubled back around us and waiting for us to continue after them, or they have just gone home, wherever home is. The lieutenant just listened and motioned for us to stand down while he contemplated the situation. He finally gave the order, gives the order to log in, settle down, in here for the night, and come, di come daylight, continue the hunt. Everybody dropped their rocks and get some relief from the heat. Some chow down and with some seas. 
as others dig in for the night and call it a day. For the remainder of the night, it was quiet. It was a quiet, hot, muggy stay. Not even a tripwire went off. <clears throat> December 25th, 1968. Area of operation, the crow's nest. Zero 0500 hours. Temperature, 80 degrees. <clears throat> At about 500 hours, a call came in over the radio to have all chickens, that's us, ready for extraction back to the base camp. And of course, there was some joy to this announcement. Finally, the unit got extracted at 0700 hours from deep double canopy jungles of the crow's nest. The AO, the AO have been have been in the last 24 days, we have been in the last 24 days, where we have lost some of our friends, and now we move away once more, and never forget this mission. When we finally landed our base camp, orders came, came in to stand down again, and wait for further orders. Time lingered on, and waiting as patiently as a GI can wait, on a hot chopper pad, for further orders, with degrees of patience for a grunt, is zero, none, nada. So it was only natural for them to start getting edgy, worried, angry, suspicious, that no one knew what was going on. They noticed that more Hueys, call sign Caspers, were continuing to come in with more troops from the field. Finally, all four grunt companies and one recon were in. Total of troops, not counting the support group, had about 900 men. Most of these young men, and they were young, the kid being the youngest at 17, were starting to conjugate around the CP, trying to listen to the radio from the company RTO, Sergeant Sanchez. They all pronounce his last name as San Cheese. Go figure. At about that time, Top walks up to our lieutenant and whispers something into his ear. <clears throat> most of us here, most of us nearby, notice a lieutenant's jaw drop as if to say, no way. This was a bad sign and karma was about to get even. And rumors started to pass that we were going into a hot LZ. The lieutenant excused himself and mentioned that the battalion commander wanted to meet with all the company officers and NCOs. About that time, a short grunt we call Short Mac mentioned something to the effect, I don't want to die today, it's Christmas Day. Those words echoed through the whole pad in minutes. Rumors spread like a wildfire on the dry brush, fast. Yankee swore he heard that we were doing a jump. That was so upsetting that some of the guys started to do some quiet thinking and others requested to have a chaplain so as to do the last rites. We all knew to do a day jump on a hot, on a hot LZ was suicidal and this was Christmas Day. 
our morale was starting to decay, even lower. The lieutenant came back from the meeting, from the meeting with the battalion commander and was not saying much. His RTO Sanchez asked if he should know what's up. Lieutenant answers, I can't, not yet. Orders went out to drop the rocks, load up light, which means get your hands on to plenty of ammunition and whatever one needs is going to need to survive at hot LZ. Damn it. All we wanted was shower, was a shower, some hot food, over easy eggs with real bacon and ham, dry clean clothes, and maybe even some ice cold PBR. <laughs> All y'all know what PBR is, eh? <clears throat> Merry Christmas, Nam. You suck. All the, all the Caspers were coming in, coming back in from refueling. And by the numbers, opportunities started loading in. As we look onto the pad, this is going to be one hell of an assault. Karma was about to get even with us. Doc, a Chicano slash Mexican from New Mexico, grabbed Sanchez's arm and said, I don't like the feeling of this, Sam Cheese. Sanchez answers, nor do I. About that time, one of the pilots usually puts on some music on the speakers, mounted underneath the choppers, to the tune of the Doors or Jimi Hendrix. But not this time. It was different. The tunes was a Christmas song by Bean Crosby. We are going into battle with the tunes from Christmas. Again, not a good sign. Bad, bad juju. Sanchez had his hand headset right up to his ear, so as not to miss any orders that would have to come through him and relate it over to the lieutenant. Nothing was coming in. Odd. They've been in the air about 30 minutes already. Then Sanchez hears the info, ETA, five minutes. He relays it over to the lieutenant, who was sitting right across from him, with a blank stare. Lieutenant gives the okay sign, thumbs up to him. Hell, Sanchez felt like giving him the finger, just for the hell of it. But he decided not to. Some of the guys started to sit on the steel helmets. It's sort of a safety net in case the chopper hits a landmine upon landing. Sanchez does the same. Then all of a sudden, Shormack yells out, Hey, that looks like a military airbase camp. Where in the hell are we going? All of a sudden, Lieutenant cracks a smile. Something's up, but what? All casters came in gliding. We unloaded as fast as possible. Lieutenant mentions, hold over there to the side, wait for further orders. We waited for about another half hour, and here comes the battalion commander with all his NCOs and officers. We all stand at attention, all 900 of us. <clears throat> Man at ease. Clears his throat with a slight crack in his voice. He apologizes to us for the close kept secret he held from us. Then he says, Man, 
Merry Christmas. This is your Christmas present from Mr. Bob Hope and the USO Group. Go and enjoy yourself afterwards. Go enjoy yourselves. And afterwards, all of you are invited to some fine, fine dining at the Air Force Mess Hall. Merry Christmas. Enjoy yourselves. Y'all have earned it. Wow. Even the lieutenant had tears in his eyes. Wow. Jew boy says, yeah, man, there is a God. <laughs> for the next three hours, for the next three hours, we all laugh so hard with Mr. Hope. We laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And we know that some of the guys had to have pee on themselves. Sure, Max says, I did twice. <clears throat> that day on Christmas, December the 25th, 1968, we knew that no one else in our unit had to die. We also knew that it was a merry, merry Christmas to all. Yes, Virginia, there is a God. And thank you, Mr. Hope, from the bottom of our hearts. For we know that they have made room for you in heaven with Jordan, Martinez, Campbell, Foote, Wiley, Rock, so many, many more that we had lost. Thank you for making us laugh one more time. This, this toast is to you. This toast is to you and to all past and present veterans. Should you see one of them on any day, please do not buy them a PBR. <laughs> but do buy them a real beer. <laughs> Thank you for your time, and I salute you. Originally from South Texas, Carlos Cervantes is currently employed as a county veteran service officer attached to the VA in Little Rock to help any and all veterans in need of any type of benefits that they are entitled to. In our next story here on Tales from the South, Helen Austin takes us to holidays in the French Quarter and Christmas Eve at Galatoire's. That Christmas Eve in New Orleans was one I'll never forget. To begin with, it was something I never expected to happen. Growing up in South Mississippi, I'd spent football weekends and New Year's holidays in that fabled city, but Christmas, I was always at home. It was a huge surprise when, in December of 2004, my husband Jerry said we could get away for a short time for the holiday. And what better place to get away to than New Orleans? We must have gotten the last available room at our favorite French Quarter hotel, the Richelieu. Up on the top floor under a mansard roof, it reminded me of the artist Garrett in the opera, La Boheme. I half expected a frail-looking Mimi to knock on the door, asking if we could relight her stub of a candle. There was never any question where we'd spend Christmas Eve. We briefly discussed ending the evening with midnight mass at St. Louis Cathedral. But as far as Jerry and I are concerned, if you haven't been to Galatoire's, you haven't been to New Orleans. And with the trip planned at the last minute, 
getting a restaurant reservation would have been iffy. Fortunately, Galatoire's not only doesn't require reservations, it doesn't even accept them. You want to eat at Galatoire's? You get in line like everybody else. If you go, wear comfortable shoes because you could be standing for some time. If you've never heard of this New Orleans institution, that may be because Galatoire's doesn't advertise. They don't need to, since Tennessee Williams had Stella Kowalski take her sister, the ill-fated Blanche Dubois, there for dinner in a streetcar named Desire. The restaurant was a favorite of Tennessee's. Most of the waiters can point out his favorite table in a corner by the front windows. The Richelieu Hotel is a few blocks from Jackson Square, across the quarter from Galatoire's, which is on Bourbon Street, just off Canal. As I remember, we set out to walk there a little before seven. People in New Orleans eat later than people in Little Rock, so we figured we'd beat the rush. We also knew from past experience that a party of two could expect to be seated much sooner than a larger group. We weren't disappointed. There wasn't even much of a line outside the restaurant, and within five minutes, we were through the door. Though a crowd waited in the holding area, we were told if we didn't mind being seated next to the coat rack at the entrance, we could be seated right away. We didn't mind. The real surprise was our waiter, Shannon. That's a name which gender-wise can go either way. But this Shannon was a woman, one of the first in the restaurant's 100-year history. We later learned she was the first Galatoire's waiter to become pregnant during her tenure. <laughs> Speaking in purest yat, Shannon took our order. For those who don't know, yat is a New Orleans dialect which takes its name from the popular greeting, where you at? <laughs> Freely translated, this means, how are you doing? It is sometimes preceded by the words, hey man, as in, hey man, where you at? Visitors to New Orleans hearing yat for the first time are understandably confused. It doesn't sound at all Southern. After more than 10 years, I'm not entirely sure what I had to eat that evening. Before we ordered, the usual hot French bread was set down, rolled in a napkin, right on the tablecloth. I probably began my meal with a house specialty, shrimp remoulade served in the classic manner of a shredded iceberg lettuce. Pompano was another specialty, so I had that for my entree. Shannon said they had soft-shell crabs, so that's what Jerry ordered. But food is only one of the reasons for going to Galatoire's. The restaurant's detractors will tell you it isn't the best food in New Orleans, though they have to admit it's still pretty doggone good. And the mirrors lining the walls give it the look of a barber shop. The main reason for going to Galatoire's is that it's like a private club anyone can belong to. Waiters greet you like a regular customer, even if they've never seen you before. Catch someone's eye in one of the mirrors, and you'll likely get a smile, unless that someone's mouth is full. Even at lunch on a weekday, the atmosphere is festive. Jerry and I always finish a Galatoire's dinner with Café Brulot, a dessert drink made with coffee, cognac, and grand marnier. 
It's prepared tableside in a sort of round-bottomed copper chafing dish called a Brillo pot. When the waiter applies a lighted match, everyone in the vicinity turns to watch the show. Those who've never seen it before are particularly entertained. Because of all this attention, I had to touch up my lipstick beforehand. <laughs> Cafe Brulo, according to the menu, may be ordered for a minimum of two people, but that order makes at least four Demetrius servings. Sipping on our first cup, Jerry and I looked at the still healthful Brulo pot and pondered. After a drink before dinner and a couple of glasses of wine, could we finish it off? Shannon helped her make, us make up our minds. Glancing from our happy faces to the source of our happiness, she asked, You walking? <laughs> we nodded. Without another word, she proceeded efficiently to ladle the remaining Brulot into polystyrene go cups, which she presented with the bill. Snow was predicted for the next day, the first Christmas snow New Orleans had seen in 50 years. The temperature had already dropped when we were in the restaurant, and the walk back to the hotel got a little nippy. But sipping on our second cup of Café Brulot, our hands and hearts were warm. As we fell into bed, we heard the bells ring out from St. Louis Cathedral. So much for Midnight Mass. <laughs> Helen Austin was a food editor at the Arkansas Democrat in the 1980s. Her husband, Jerry, has been retired from custom audio and video for six years. So far, they have managed not to kill each other. <laughs> Next on Tales from the South, Paul Bowen and his brother decide a foot race after Christmas dinner is a good idea in Dash Away All. We used to have Christmas at my house. This started about 1996 or so, if memory serves. Mother was still doing pretty good, but her Parkinson's had progressed to the point that she just didn't need to be trying to concoct a big Christmas dinner. That, and I had a, I had a far more lenient policy regarding adult beverages than did my quasi-Baptist mother. <laughs> it worked out pretty nicely. Uh, I have a big kitchen and commercial grade range, Back in those days, I did both ribs and a beef tenderloin on the grills on the deck. Folks hung out in the kitchen, on the porch, or on the deck. A ball game was always playing on the TV. Kids were playing on the computer. Such are the warm memories of the holidays that sustain us over the years. It was the second or third year of Christmas at Uncle Paul's that a certain event took place that yet to this day holds a prominent place in the collective memory of the family. It was after dinner. My brothers and I were out on the deck drinking amber liquid, smoking cigars, and otherwise providing the usual positive example of right living for the children. <laughs> Somehow the topic of athletic prowess came up. I was a competitive tennis player back in those days, and my brother Bob had started doing a uh, regiment of kettlebells. According to him, this means that he could beat me in a 40-yard dash. Listen, I said. I can outrun you to the top of Van Buren and back. No way, he replied. Yeah, right now, big guy, right now with me in street shoes. Let's do it, was his response. Of course, our brother John thought this was a really good idea and offered to start us. 
And so all the Christmas guests gathered on the corner of my street and Van Buren to watch the big race. Now, for those unfamiliar with the neighborhood I refer to as the People's Republic of Hillcrest, <laughs> Van Buren is a main artery, and it's about a 60-degree incline. What could possibly go wrong? John started us off, and as prophesied by me back on the deck, I smoked Bob by a good 30 yards. I hit the top of the hill, turned around to head down to the finish line, and promptly tweaked a hamstring, <laughs> which caused me to take a header out there on the course. I rolled three or four times. I skinned up my face. I thought I broke my hand. Bob ran past me as I lay there in the street. Loser, he yelled, <laughs> trying to be helpful, I'm sure. <clears throat> About that time, I sensed the headlights behind me. I rolled over and saw a Buick heading my way. One of those big ones I used to make back then, a Roadmaster or a deuce and a quarter. I quickly rolled off the street. The Buick pulled alongside me. It was full of elderly ladies who had been to church or doing some activity more sensible than what I'd been up to. <laughs> a window came down. A sweet face, albeit one etched with appropriate alarm, looked down at me. Are you all right? <laughs> I looked up at the lights. I looked back at her. W was I all right? <laughs> all right. Yeah, I was all right for some damn fool who had managed to not get crushed by a road grader old lady car because he blew a hamstring running a race on Christmas night. Yeah, I was all right. By that time, Bob had come back up the hill to make sure I wasn't dead. We assured the ladies in the half-track-sized Buick that I was fine. And we stumbled back to my house. As we stumbled back to my house, he asked if I was okay, like he cared. I told him that I thought I'd broken my hand. Awesome, he said. This is the best Christmas ever. Now, tradition has it that two girls named Jeanette and Isabella, French and Spanish names not likely actually present in Bethlehem of Judea at the time, but what the heck, were, unlike Bob and I, engaged in purposeful running on Christmas night in one of my favorite carols. Bring a torch, Jeanette Isabella, bring a torch to the cradle run. It is Jesus, good folk of the village, Christ is born and Mary's calling. Ah, ah, beautiful is the mother, ah, ah, beautiful is her son. It is wrong when the child is sleeping, it is wrong to talk so loud. Silence all as you gather round, lest your noise should wake on Jesus, hush. Hush, see how fast he slumbers. Hush, see how fast he sleeps. Hasten now, good folk of the village. Hasten now, the Christ child to see. You will find him asleep in the manger. Quietly come and whisper softly. Hush, hush, peacefully now he slumbers. Hush, peacefully now he sleeps. Bring a torch, Jeanette Isabella, bring a torch to the cradle run. It is Jesus, good folk of the village, Christ is born, and Mary's calling. Ah, ah, beautiful is the mother, ah, ah, beautiful is her son. So how did all this work out? Bob's wife was furious. 
She didn't speak to him on the trip back to Conway that night. <laughs> the then sister-in-law attached to John at the time thought she had married into a lunatic asylum. Brother Dave must not have been there that year because I don't recall any words of ridicule out of him. And Mother poured the high-end Christmas booze down the sink. <clears throat> now, it's not like anybody was drunk, really. But drunk pathology was probably easier for Mom to get her arms around than the notion that half of the four sons she brought into this world turned out to be idiots. Was it worth all that? At Christmas, was it worth all that? Are you kidding? Of course it was. Like Bob said, it was the best Christmas ever. Good thing, unlike the European girls rumored to be at the manger on that first Christmas, that Bob and I weren't packing torches when we headed up Van Buren that night. After all, that would have been dangerous. Arthur Paul Bowen is a writer and recovering lawyer. He lives in Little Rock. <laughs> in our final story of the night here at Tales from the South, Crystal C. Mercer just wants one thing to celebrate the new year in When the Clock Strikes. I have always had this fantasy of being kissed at midnight on the first day of a new year. In a quiet place, counting down with the one I love, moving closer as the seconds fade, Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. But that has never happened. <laughs> My New Year's Eve is usually sandwiched between a drunk friend, a sad friend, most often I'm the sad friend, another friend with their girlfriend or boyfriend trying not to be awkward among the deflated and single, also, I'm usually the designated driver, affectionately known as the Double D, making sure that we party hop without crashing into anyone. Do you know how hard it is driving intoxicated grown-ups around, stacked on top of each other, singing Christmas songs? <laughs> it's, well, we say we wouldn't talk about it. Or that other New Year's Eve, or that... Other, other New Year's Eve. Anyway, come to think of it, there are not too many New Year's Eves that I can speak on. We were party animals under the moon and redesigned humans by Morn's Light. All of us were just trying to forget about the previous year and be hopeful on what's on the horizon of the new year ahead. My daddy used to always say, we are the sum total of all of our experiences. He would know. He lived to be 88 years old. Sometimes I tried to forget about what was embarrassing or unsuccessful in my past. However, my daddy was right. It was the sum total of my experiences that brought me into a full understanding. I had to be fearless, turn frowns upside down. So I tried to turn my fantasy into reality, make my New Year's Eve dream come true. A few years ago, I was dating a guy, Ronnie, that I dated most of my life. We spent 13 years together. Well, together is relative. He was a military man. He was stationed in another state, had several tours of duty overseas, and had a rigorous work schedule. We made it work the best we could. Every occasion was special when we had a chance to visit. One year, he saved up enough days to come to Arkansas for Christmas and the New Year. I was so excited. All I could think about was decking the halls with him, laughing with our family and friends, being close to him, and of course, 
the moment I've lived for and thought about since I was a young girl, being kissed at midnight, January 1st, by my beau. Christmas, check, went off without a hitch. Kwanzaa, check, made some moves with the people in our community. New Year's Eve, the night I was waiting for. We stayed in watching all of the happenings on Times Square. While everyone else hit the streets, it was just he and I, cozy on the couch at his mother's house. It was around 10 o'clock p.m. when I tried to tell him about this burning, fantastical desire I had. Baby, I said sweetly. Yes, Chris, he flashed his perfect smile. I know this may sound silly, you've kissed me a thousand times, but I, well, my nerves begin to take over. I would, well, I kept babbling. I wanted to know if I was starting to feel silly. And he was just looking at me with confusion. What is it, babe? You can tell me. Is something wrong? Oh, oh no, dear. I just wanted to ask you something. I quickly calmed his fears. Okay, then, ask me, <laughs> he said patiently. This was the man that I loved, the man of my dreams. We had been dating for almost seven years at this point, so surely I could ask him anything. I was nervous because he hadn't been home in a while, and I missed him. I swallowed that lump in my throat, parted my lips, and let it go. Baby, I want you to kiss me at midnight. There. I said it. My joy and exhilaration of letting that secret out was popped like a balloon when he started laughing. <laughs> laughing, I thought, this fool is laughing at me. <laughs> Chris, that is ridiculous. I kiss you all the time. I'll kiss you right now. You must have seen that on a movie. Yeah, too many movies, babe. And then he started mocking me. Kiss me at midnight. Girl, you better kiss me right now. I don't want to kiss you right now. I want to kiss you at midnight, I protested. <laughs> he leaned in closer, playfully taunting with me. Come here, girl. You don't want to kiss me now? Puckering his lips, laying smooches on my shoulders and my cheeks. No, stop. I'm serious, baby. I've always wanted to do that. I mean, okay, here. I laid a kiss on him, held his face in my hands, and continued to explain. I love you, and I want to bring in 2009 with your lips on my lips. Okay, we'll see, he said stoically. Now, when this man said, we'll see, it meant maybe, but probably not. I went quiet, zoned into Times Squares, and wishing for a split second that I was with my drunk friends. I mean, <laughs> how could he deny this request? Maybe he was just messing with me. I had faith in him to make this dream come true. December 31st, 2008, 11.59 p.m. 60 seconds away from the ball drop. 50 seconds away from my countdown. We held hands, sat close. Oh my, the moment was coming. I was readying myself not too eager, not too reserved, patient and ready. I leaned in close to my love, puckered my lips, closed my eyes, and he blocked my kiss with his hand, <laughs> laughing. It was a joke to him, but I was devastated. I started crying. Tears flowed like the Nile, poured like a heavy rain. I was crushed. 
Chris, Chris, I'm sorry. You really cared about that stupid stuff? It's not stupid to me. I snapped back. He walked out of the room. It seemed like forever for him to come back. I was cupping my tears in my hand. 12.03 a.m., January 1st, 2009, Ronnie returns, wipes away my tears, and gives me <laughs> the sweetest kiss. I kissed him back because I loved him, kissed him once more on his cheek, and then whispered in his ear, it's not the same. It had to be when the clock strikes midnight. I'm sorry, but I wanted to teach you a lesson. You can't always have things your way, he whispered back. I can have things my way. <laughs> Isn't that what relationships are about? I do anything you want me to do and you do anything I want you to do as long as it doesn't kill us or make us crazy. <laughs> I stopped myself from continuing this furious rant that was brewing inside of me. I'm going to bed. Happy freaking New Year. <laughs> I said sarcastically and marched out. He came to bed a couple of hours later held me. We woke up with the sun splitting through the blinds and lace curtains. On the surface, it was like nothing had ever happened. Last night was last year, and the morning brought a sense of responsibility to let go and move on. Here I stand, 2015, on the cusp of a new year. I smiled my way through that night some years ago, but I never got over his hand blocking my lips. I never got over not being kissed at midnight on the first day of a new year. Feels like a curse, some plague of the hopeful romantic. Always hopeful, never romantic. However, I know that that can change. When love happens for me again, I will hold his hands, look into his eyes, see my future, take a breath, and ready myself. The nervous leaning in, the fog of his breath against my skin, and then 10 Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Thank you. Crystal C. Mercer is a freelance performance artist and sole proprietor of Columbus Creative Arts and Activism and Safi Custom Homebody, daughter of legendary civil rights lawyer, attorney Christopher C. Mercer, Jr. She honors the legacy of her father by fusing arts and activism. Stay connected and find her on Facebook at CC Mercer 2 That's T-O-O. So how about our stories and storytellers tonight? Thank you to all of our writers. Thank you to our live audience here at the Capitol Hotel. And thank you to UALR Public Radio. Tales from the South is presented by Timonos Publishing Company and the Midnight Muse Writing Workshops. Additional support provided by UALR School of Mass Communications, the Writers' Colony at Derry Hollow, Little Rock Soiree Magazine, UALR's Department of Rhetoric and Writing, the North Little Rock Visitors Bureau, the Arkansas Arts Council, and the Oxford American, the Southern Magazine of Good Writing. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio, and you can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from all Southerners. More can be found at talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next week for another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. 
More at RobinwoodBnB.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at BakerHouseNLR.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive. And we'll see you next week on Tales from the South. Oh